0: So we are going through the next in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, Becky's already done a summary of the series so far, so I'm not going to labour that too much. But we are at this point where there has been this amazing prayer meeting. It says that they were filled with the Spirit to such an extent that the building shook. Who wants a prayer meeting like that? It'd be great. So we are in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And to start with, I'm just going to read through um, to the point where I'm going to finish today and just comment a little bit and then I just want to think a bit about what we should take away from this story uh, because it could be a confusing one. So, Acts 4, verse 32. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but instead, they held everything in common. Now, There's a couple of bits we need to note here. One is that this isn't being taught or imposed by the apostles. Yeah, This is a heart attitude that the Holy Spirit put into the people of God at this point in time in church history. It says the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that his possessions was his own. The apostles didn't say, oi, those possessions are yours. They're not really yours. There are churches that try to do that these days and it's horrible because that is not what was going on. What was going on was an extraordinary work of God's grace and leading to have this heart amongst themselves where what's mine is yours. And it wasn't even, what's yours is mine. It's, what's mine is yours, if you are in need. I think the other thing to notice is that it seems to be a one-off. This is the last time this is ever mentioned in the book of Acts, this sort of arrangement. It's never mentioned in any of the churches that Paul plants. It's never mentioned from here up until chapter 11 or 12 when Paul starts his church planting missions. So it isn't even that we can say, I think some people look at a passage like this and say, well, you can't possibly have that political position because look what the church was like. This wasn't the only way the church existed in the first century. This was something that God led this group of people that is being described to live like. Now, is it a good way to live? Amen. It is brilliant to, to be so aware that actually everything you have belongs to him anyway. Therefore, it is his to redistribute as he leads. But do you know what? It's as he leads. It is not as you are influenced to give away. Um, I mean, I can't help but think of churches whose names I'm not going to mention because I don't want to get sued, but churches I've heard of in other nations who do things like the holy fire of Mount Sinai. <laughs> if you want God to bless you, Sell something big, a house, a car, a kidney. No, not a kidney. Uh, (laughs) Something that will give you some money, and then you give it to your local pastor, and he will, honest, take it to Israel and burn it on Mount Sinai as a burnt offering to the Lord. I mean. This isn't gold, so clearly I'm not in this Ponzi scheme. But this is what they do. And people are sucked into it. And they've got the one testimony where it, quote unquote, worked. It may even be a plant. This is not what the apostles were doing. The apostles didn't actually say, sell the stuff that you've got. We'll see later on. This was not their encouragement. This was something grassroots that the people of God had in their heart to do, yeah? We can't impose it like this. Now, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Again, this is another sign that we this isn't some sort of Bible-sanctioned communism or socialism, and I'm not going to get political. I don't even have political views, in all honesty. This is not something that is being driven by any external factor. This is grace at work of the people of God, leading to this massive generosity. Now, the result was there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. Now, one of the commentaries by a guy called Michael Eaton, uh, who I quite like, Uh, He talks about this not actually being literally some sort of ceremony where the apostles are lined up in a row and you bring the proceeds of your thing and go, there you go. That isn't what it was. It was actually more like being guided by the apostles about how what you've got, the money that you've got for selling your thing. How can this best be used? Um, He picks up the phrase that Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. That was his discipleship path before he came into Christ so it's not even that the apostles were administering this directly it was more that as the people sold things and as they said look I've got this much what can what use can it be put to the apostles kind of orchestrated it but it wasn't given in to the apostles I am never and I can say this I am never ever ever going to say sell something and give me the money because that isn't what this passage teaches You can misunderstand it that way, but that isn't what it teaches. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So this is the big picture. And then Luke zooms in on one person. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth. The one the apostles called Barnabas. Imagine having a nickname that the apostles gave you. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. The people leading that 5,000, 7,000 strong church at that time. And the apostles have got a nickname for you. Son of encouragement. It's a good nickname as well. He was known to be an encourager in the church. But what Joseph called Barnabas did, he sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, fields could sell for quite a lot of money in those days. Think back to Judas. What did he use his 30 silver coins for? 30 pieces of silver, he bought a field. That could have been quite a lot of money that Barnabas was um, not going to hold on to for himself. But you see, Barnabas was motivated by this great grace that was at work in the people of God. He follows Jesus' example of laying his life down so that those who put their trust in him will benefit from it. Jesus did not benefit from his death. We benefit from his death. Barnabas did not benefit from selling his field, the church, his brothers and sisters who he loved benefited from selling that field. He is a great example of the grace of God working in someone's heart to do something extraordinary. Willingly out of love and devotion, not because it was someone up there saying, you've got to do it, See, there was a a wonderful season in church life where this is what was going on. As we go into chapter five, there's a word, but. Luke wants us to contrast Barnabas with this next couple that he talks about. There was a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. They too sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, and here we can see another word of knowledge at work. Peter had supernatural insight to what was really going on and he calls it out. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Now, up to this point, you could be forgiven for thinking that that their sin, the thing that they've done wrong, is that they've kept back some of the money. Why have you done this? You've kept back some of the money. But Peter says this, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? There was no obligation for them to sell what they sold. And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal See, there was discretion for them to choose to keep some of the money if they wanted. They could have done. There was nobody imposing any kind of rule about needing to sell anything or needing to give the whole money. The problem is that they were saying this is all the money while keeping some of it back for themselves. It was hypocrisy. It was lies. Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Go on, John, preach this. (laughs) This is a a heavy, weighty story. I want to start by, we've started here a little bit, comparing Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. We've talked how Barnabas was grace-motivated and it had voluntary generosity. It was motivated from the heart, whereas Ananias and Sapphira were hypocritical, deceptive, hollow, They did a hollow mimicry of what Barnabas did. Why? Because they wanted to look good. They saw Barnabas get that nickname from the apostles. They're like, well, I want some of that. But they didn't want it so much that they were prepared to pay the whole price for it. Because actually their hearts weren't in the right place, as Becky was saying, before she took the kids out. But what should we make of this story? There are a couple of bad takes that I've heard before that I want to make sure you don't hear. First thing that we can get wrong is we can hype up God's holiness in a way that denies or minimizes the reality of new covenant grace. Yeah, I have heard people point to this story and say, see, grace is good. Yes, but remember, if you muck up, you can die. What grace is that? We can't read it that way. The other way I've heard it badly taught is used to underline the importance of giving and tithing faithfully and fully. I've heard people say things like, "Look, don't hold anything back. Look at Ananias and Sapphira; they held it back and they gave." You can't get that out of this passage. I'm sorry. If I, I'm never going to teach it, but if you ever hear anyone else teach it, take them back to verse 5, verse 3 and 4. It was yours. You didn't have to sell it. Mm. It was your money once you sold it. You didn't have to give it all. That was Peter's talk. This is not about holding stuff back, no. Now, there are some common questions that people ask about Ananias and Sapphira that I've wrestled with a bit in preparing. The first one is, were they even truly Christians? Maybe this is a sign, the way that they acted in this way is a sign that they weren't truly Christians. I don't know. I feel like to be part of the early church, you were supposed to have repented, expressed faith in Jesus, been baptised in water and then received the Holy Spirit. God isn't going to pour his Holy Spirit out on someone that hasn't truly put their trust in Jesus. But equally... It doesn't say explicitly that they had received the Holy Spirit in that way. I'm making an assumption there. So maybe they were, maybe they weren't. The second question people ask is, well, did God kill them? Bible doesn't actually say that God killed them. It says that they died. You could maybe infer that he did because it was involved in a word of knowledge. But if you go to Acts chapter 12, when Herod dies, because he was full of pride, it explicitly says, an angel of the Lord struck him dead. So when Luke is aware that God killed someone, he'll say it. He doesn't say it here. Did God really kill them? Maybe, maybe not. I'm going to be a little bit noncommittal because I think there are valid reasons for believing either side. Luke doesn't tell us. Well, if God did kill them, why was this act deserving of death? Especially when you think of some of the similar misdeeds down through the ages, and even worse. If you think back to the 80s and the 90s with the televangelists misappropriating funds left, right and centre, the church that I've already not mentioned the name of. (laughs) There's all sorts of dodginess going on. Why aren't people dying today if God really did kill them? The other question, didn't Jesus die for this sin too? What was it about this sin that meant that they had to die? Well, I know that we can expect discipline from the Lord, but is this discipline or is this going back into judgment? Other question, will we see Ananias and Sapphira in the new heavens and the new earth? If they were truly Christians, yes. They'll be saved as through fire, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, but they will be saved if they were truly Christians. And then this last one, which is the one that's always bothered me. In my wrestles with, um, with grace, with accepting that God's grace is as good as the Bible seems to talk about it, I would read stories like this and say, see, I knew it wasn't good. I knew it wasn't as good as I've been told. So if grace is preached last year, we went through a series on grace last year. If grace is true, what's going on here? Now, before I give you my take on it, and I'm going to give you my take, because as I say, there are different spins on this story that I think are valid. There are some principles that we need to hold as we study the Bible, because you see, this is the word of God. Amen. Every single word in this book is inspired, God breathed, full of the Holy Spirit. But we need to know how to read it. We need to know how to interpret it. We need to understand things as they are. So the first thing. First principle that we need to hold as we study the Bible and work out what it means is don't make the Bible say things it doesn't actually say. It sounds really simple, but it's really, really difficult to get right. Because sometimes we read a word and into that word we pour a whole load of meaning that might not actually be there in the Bible. But we have to be so careful. We've already touched on some of these. It doesn't say that God took their lives. You can infer it, You can imply it, but it isn't explicit in what Luke talks about, especially when you compare it with Herod in Acts 12. The other thing, it doesn't say that they were true Christians. There are hints that they may not have been, but it doesn't say that they weren't true Christians. (laughs) I've heard people make a suggestion that Ananias and Sapphira were Pharisee infiltrators trying to take down the church from the inside. And I can see possible signs that it might be right. But Luke doesn't tell us that. I can't stand here and tell you that's what was going on and that's why it was good that they died. I'd love to be able to because it'd be super simple. I wouldn't have to wrestle with anything. But it's not in there. Equally, it isn't teaching us that we should hold nothing back. It doesn't teach a general principle of being serious with sin because we never know when God might get us. It doesn't tell us If God did truly take their lives, why God took their lives? It doesn't. The other principle I want to talk about, first one, don't make the Bible say things it doesn't actually say. The second one is, don't let what is clear and repeated in Scripture be complicated by the things that are less clear or only mentioned once or twice. Yeah? I've already talked about grace. But this is one story, and it's presented descriptively. In Acts chapter 5, Luke is describing what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Yeah? You've got to be careful with Bible stories sometimes. Sometimes, especially when describing human actions, the Bible is describing what happened, not what should have happened. the the story itself doesn't actually draw any broader principles that we could or should apply in my reading and my study of it. So we need to let what is clear in Scripture challenge this passage rather than the other way around. We shouldn't use this passage to start talking nonsense about fully tithing or start talking about how we need to be super serious about sin. No, because actually New Covenant Grace through the blood of Jesus, rings loud and clear in every page of the New Testament. Amen? We should interpret those truths, this story through those truths, and not the other way around. Justification by grace through faith is crystal clear. Through faith in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of what he accomplished on the cross, we are declared righteous. As righteous as he is. Think about it. Jesus did not sin. He is perfect Righteousness. He did not die for his own sin. He died for my sin and for your sin. And when we put our trust in him, God says, hey, you're righteous. You now have Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are perfect in his eyes. We are continually welcomed into God's presence through the blood of Jesus. When we were outside Christ, we could not earn this righteousness that we've been given as a gift. Amen? Yeah? So if when we're outside Christ, we can't earn righteousness, what makes us think that when we're inside Christ, we can send that righteousness away? You thought of it that way? I have lived many, many years of my life terrified that I am going to sin the righteousness that I've received away, that God's just going to wash his hands of me. I didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. It's a gift. So I can't do anything to lose it other than spurn that gift. And I'm not going to spurn that gift because it's my only hope. Yes. It is the only hope I have. You see, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love. So whatever we say about Ananias and Sapphira, we must not drop, compromise or water down any of these precious truths about the grace of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? Hey Dave. Good to see you mate. Not at all. So what do I think is going on in this story? Well, again, let's compare Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas knew the grace of God. There was great grace on the church and he was giving that grace expression in his life. He did not sell the field as a show of his own righteousness, but one of genuine love and concern for his brothers and sisters in the church. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Ananias and Sapphira... Seem to me my reading of them, and I'm being really I'm being really careful to not read things into the Bible that aren't there, because I've just told you you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I might fall short of it, but this is my understanding of what I think is going on. Ananias and Sapphira seem to me to have fallen into the error of self-justification. They saw the reputation that Barnabas had, and they wanted some of it for themselves. And so they did something in their own strength, in their own wisdom, in their own thinking to try and get that reputation through earning it rather than receiving it through grace in Christ. They were trying to justify themselves. If they were true Christians, and I'll leave it as an open question, Ananias and Sapphira seem to me to have fallen from grace, as Paul describes in Galatians 5. Do you remember in Galatians 5? That's where the Bible talks about fall, you have fallen from grace. And we usually use that phrase to mean someone that has done something so bad, so terrible, Oh, they've fallen from grace. They're beyond hope. That isn't what Paul means with the phrase "fallen from grace. In Galatians 5, verse 4, Paul says this, you who are trying to be justified by the law, by the things that you can do in your own strength, are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You fall from grace when you try and justify yourself, when you try and earn the righteousness that God would give you as a gift. That is when you have fallen from grace. Not by doing something so bad that you're beyond the pale, It's by trying to do the right stuff in your own strength. Do you get it? That is what is falling from grace. And I think that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They were trying to justify themselves through their own deeds and effort. So they cut themselves off from actively receiving grace from Christ. Now, even if they had done what they probably should have done, even if they had given all the money so that at least they weren't guilty of lying to the Holy Spirit, they still would have fallen short of what Barnabas did. They still, it still would have been wood, hay and straw that was going to burn on that day of judgment when Jesus comes back. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about, be careful how you build, build with gold, silver and precious stones, not wood, hay and straw. And you build with gold, silver and precious stones by building on Christ and Christ alone, not by your own deeds of goodness. So even if they'd given all the money because of their heart motivation, they still would have fallen from grace and they still would have been in trouble. Because Paul also in Galatians 5 outlines the principle that those who seek to be justified by the law must obey the whole law or else fall under the curse. And that looks strikingly like what happened to Ananias and Sapphira to me. Now, if they had rested in Christ, trusting that he was enough for them, forgetting about their reputations, I believe they would have experienced blessings and true transformation through that grace. And that could have led them to be another Barnabas. If they had rested in what Jesus wanted to give them as a gift, perfect, spotless righteousness, without doing anything for it other than trusting in him, they would have had a revolution in their hearts and they would have had that sort of reputation. But as it is, they turned back to rely on what they could do to justify themselves, coming back under the curse of the law. And then the trouble is, they broke the law because they lied. In effect, by trying to justify themselves, they're saying, Jesus, what you did isn't enough for me. I'm going to do this so that I can look good instantly coming under the law again and then i'm not going to do what the law says which is be honest for me that is why ananias and sapphira died and i'm not saying god killed them because i can't say that from the passage i'm saying they died because they came back under the curse of the law but that's my take if you study it and see it differently We can still be be friends. We can still be part of the same church. Because the passage itself just talks about what happened. But how do we avoid their fate? Who wants to avoid being killed in front of the whole church? I do. Especially because I'm speaking right now in front of you all. How do we avoid their fate? I'll tell you how we don't avoid their fate. We don't avoid their fate by trying really, 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 really really hard to live free from sin and hypocrisy. Because that's to fall away from grace again. That's us trying to do it ourselves. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we can't do it. We can't. I can't. I mean, my wife will tell you I'm perfect, but that's because she (laughs) doesn't. That was the look I wanted, thank you. (laughs) My wife will tell you I'm not perfect. Perfect for her, maybe. Maybe. But in the big scheme of things, I have faults. I have have faults. I confess to you all, I have faults. Haven't we all? Especially (laughs) men. No, especially men. Do you know what? I'll move on. We cannot avoid Ananias and Sapphira's fate by trying really, 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 really hard because the whole reason we came into faith is because we realised we couldn't do it anyway. We avoid their fate by putting all our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Amen? We are made righteous, fully righteous, by trusting him and trusting him alone. If you haven't known that for yourself, and I think everyone in this room has, but if anyone listening to this online hasn't known that for themselves, if you are struggling with guilt and condemnation because of things you've done, there is an offer to you perfect righteousness by just trusting that Jesus took your sin upon himself on the cross. Amen. Trusting that what he did is enough and will always be enough. We can avoid their fate by resting and abiding in Christ. Trusting that he is all we need and that we are secure in him. Amen? We can avoid their fate by resisting envy and jealousy, by rejoicing in God's grace. They looked at Barnabas and saw what they lacked and tried to remedy themselves, rather than looking to God and saying, thank you that you accept me, even though I have these faults, even though I have this lack. See, God's grace is the great leveller of all God's people. We all need it. And we're never going to stop needing it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun because we are going to still rely on that amazing, amazing grace. How do we avoid their fate? Resist any attempts to rely on yourself or make yourself look good. I put gel in my hair this morning. Does it look good? No. <laughs> Good. Didn't want it to anyway, Eddie. <laughs> Resist any attempts to make yourself look. I'm not talking about not looking after yourself. Yeah. You can take this to extremes and people have done it in church history. They've gone and lived in the desert on their own. They've eaten flies and got stinky and dirty and not looked after themselves. No. Jesus says, when you fast, oil your hair, dress yourself, make it a thing between you and God. I'm not saying don't look after yourself. What I am saying is don't brag about the things you're doing. Mm -hmm. Don't try and do stuff. You can come in, (laughs) mum. Don't try and do stuff that makes yourself look good. Mm -hmm. Amen? Because you're never going to be good enough. And Jesus is already good enough. How do we avoid their fate? Last one. Know that you are fully accepted in Christ. And knowing that you are fully accepted in Christ should mean that we can cultivate openness and honesty with God and with one another. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we have to share our deepest, darkest struggles with one another, because there is wisdom and propriety as well. But do you know what? We don't have to pretend we're something we're not. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> we really don't i am accepted by jesus if you have put your trust in him you are accepted by jesus you need to do nothing else and as you've learned to rest in that you can avoid ananias and sapphira's fate amen shall we stand and worship lord jesus I want to thank you that for all my faults, for all my failures, you accept me. Not because of who I am, but because I trust in you. Lord Jesus, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here in this room, that if there is any sense of lack, any sense of inadequacy, any sense of not being enough, Lord Jesus, that you will minister grace to their hearts right now. Lord, that you would cause us to look to you, to look to the cross and see there our sufficiency, to look to the empty tomb and see there our guarantee of life and access to the Father. Lord Jesus, that we would not rest anymore on what we can do, but wholly on what you can do in us. Draw us on, Lord Jesus. Fill us up afresh with your spirit, that blood-bought gift. Fill us afresh, we pray. And lead us on this morning and beyond into the week ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen.